Good morning. I would say happy Labor Day weekend, but it's, it's uh, more important for me anyway to say happy Ruth's birthday. <laughs> I had to throw that out there, you know. In any case, we are going to be in Acts chapter 16 this morning. We are, although Tom read from verse 1 all the way through till, what was it, 16 or so, we're actually going to be looking at verses 1 through 5 this morning. Before we get started, let's have a word of prayer, and then we will examine the text. And then after we examine and learn from the text of the scriptures, we will go to communion and sing a few more songs, and we will uh, then conclude our study at that point in time in our time of worship corporately together. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for the privilege we have and the honor we have to bring uh, glory to you and praise to you and to worship you as supreme corporately. It is only because of your mercy that we're able to do so. It's only because we who were dead in our trespasses and sins, according to the scriptures, you made us alive. You drew us to you. You gave us your spirit. You gave us a new heart so that we could lift up praise to you. So Lord, I pray that you will continue your transformative work in our lives so that we will, in a greater and greater way, recognize your glorious majesty. Help us as we consider the text this morning that we will uh, come to understand in uh, deeper ways your truth and who you are and what your heartbeat is so that we will uh, be in agreement with you. So glorify yourself in our worship. In your name I pray. Amen. So Acts chapter 16, 1 through 5 this morning, we have concluded as of last week the study on the Jerusalem Council and the preceding conflict after the Jerusalem Council that we saw in uh, chapter 15. Obviously, Acts chapter 15 was a watershed. You just wanted to be in the, in the camera, didn't you? Yeah, okay. So anybody watching online, that's Charles. I uh, just wanted to point that out. <laughs> it's not the Holy Spirit behind me. <laughs> point of clarification, right? Yeah. In any case. In Acts chapter 15, we saw that it was really the watershed issue the watershed issue of a change from the gospel being primarily a Jewish-focused message into very much a Gentile-focused message. From here on out, it is going to become more and more primary to be a Gentile message because according to the scriptures elsewhere, Paul writes that God, through the Holy Spirit, is hardening uh, Jewish hearts so that they do not receive at this point in time. They are remaining hardened. There are some exceptions, but generally speaking, from here on out, we are going to see it move dramatically into more of a Gentile uh, received gospel. Now that will change at, at, at various points in the, in the storyline of the scriptures, but generally speaking, that is the case. So after Paul finishes up um, uh, in the, the whole, or Luke, I'm sorry, the whole discussion of the Jerusalem Council and then the conflict between Paul and Barnabas and they separate. Uh, we saw last week Paul and Silas, verse 40 of chapter 15, depart, um, having been commended by the Lord to the grace of the Lord, and he went through Syria 
and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. That brings us to chapter 16, verse 1. And in the process of that journey, he arrives at Derby and Lystra. Now, he's already been uh, in that area before, has he not? We saw it in chapter 14. Specifically, there was a major focus on both cities. Uh, there was in, in the city of Lystra, there was basically how many converts as far as we know? Does anybody remember? One convert. As far as we could tell, that's it. And then he proceeds over to Derby and all we know at that point in time for Derby is there is many converts, correct? There's many converts in Derby. So now after this journey to, to um, uh, Jerusalem and the time that it took place in Jerusalem, he now is back in Derby and Lystra. And this is the point we mentioned in chapter 14, and I'll remind you of that. This is the point when we are introduced by name to a disciple in Derby. I'm sorry, in, he's in Lystra. In Lystra, and his name is Timothy. And he's here in chapter 16, verse 1, he's described as the son of a Jewish woman who is a believer, but his father was Greek. Elsewhere in the Scriptures, we find out not only was his grandmother a believer, but also his mother was as well. And so what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 is that basically his grandmother and then his mother taught him the truths of the Old Testament as he was a child growing up, which the Lord used, obviously, to bring him to salvation. Now, if you remember, in our study in chapter 14, I met, when we looked at the beginning of chapter 14, we talked about the, um, this lame guy. Remember that story? The lame guy early in chapter 14 who Paul looks at as he's preaching, and that's the one guy that is clearly responding to the message. Remember that? And that lame guy becomes a saved person. And it, what I said back when we looked through 14 is it may very well be, I won't be dogmatic about it, but it may very well be that this lame guy that's get, that gets healed in chapter 14 may very well be Timothy. I want to remind you that Luke is notorious for doing a really basic, generic introduction in the book of Acts he does it over and over again, a real generic introduction to somebody that's basic and simple and quick, and then a chapter or two later, suddenly that person blows up on the scene. And that's exactly what we have happen here in 14 and 16. We have 14, there's just a statement about this guy who is enthralled with what Paul is, is saying, who's lame and then is healed, and, and then he's saved, of course, and then next thing you know, a chapter, a little over a chapter later, well, two chapters later, we're introduced to the same person in the same town of Lystra. But now the explanation of this guy, it becomes much more detailed. And now he's become much more detailed. He remains in many, in many different times throughout the book of Acts. He shows up. So he's there in an ongoing basis. So he becomes one of the figures of the books of, book of Acts. So we see in, in verse 1 of chapter 16, he's a mixed um, person, that is, he's Jewish and Gentile, or he's uh, Jewish and Greek. You'll notice verse 2, as they begin to expand, as Luke begins to expand who this Timothy character is. 
And again, I, I think he's probably the previously lame guy. Verse 2, he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. A couple quick points, we'll get off of it. You'll notice he says in both towns, Lystra and uh, both locations, Lystra and Iconium, the people there are speaking highly of him. You get that, right? But you want to notice that it's the brothers that are speaking highly of him. Who are the brothers? It'd be saved people. The saved people who have been interacting with him, who have been interacting with him, I would argue, according to the faith, that is, they've been worshiping together, they've been studying the scriptures together, they've been learning of Christ together, these people are the ones who are speaking well of him. Now, please don't miss the point. They're not saying, yeah, that Timothy who... who to work with me on 14. That Timothy, who, um, that guy who once was lame and now he's not, man, he's a good worker. That's not the speaking well of him. Speaking well of him is not, yeah, that Timothy, you know, he's just a really friendly guy. It's not, that Timothy, you know what? He's really nice or he's really caring. Or he goes out of his way to help people. That's not what this is. Not by any stretch of the imagination. When the brothers are speaking well of Timothy, what that means is that Timothy is one who is consistently holding to the truth. He is robustly presenting the truth. He is standing for and arguing for the truth. He's defending the truth. He's advancing the truth. That is, pushing out and pushing it out and pushing it out and pushing it out. He's living the truth. It is his zeal. It is his passion. It is his modus operandi. It's his reason for getting up in the morning. It's his reason for doing all that he's doing. This Timothy is enthralled with Jesus. His Redeemer. And because the rest of the brothers are also enthralled, they do what? They speak highly of him. Speaking highly of him is another way of saying he is really, really valuable to us spiritually. Does that make sense? The Spirit has used him in our lives dramatically. The Spirit has transformed us in so many ways, and one of those tools the Spirit has used repeatedly in our lives is Timothy. That's what it means. That's exactly what it means. Now, we need to stop on that one for a second, don't we? I mean, do I even need to develop that any further, right? I really don't. But the challenge, though, is really striking, isn't it? I want to approach verse 2 from two perspectives. Okay? Because I think we must. I'll just tell you. The first, and they're kind of applicational. They're not kind of, they really are. The first of the two approaches is going to be relatively, hopefully, comfortable. At the same time, it's uncomfortable. The second one is going to be inherently uncomfortable. I want to ask you a question. It's going to be 
couple questions here, but the first question is, I'd like you to think about the various believers in your life. Okay? I want you to think about various believers that you know that are in your life. Maybe family members, maybe friends, maybe co-workers, maybe acquaintances, maybe people at church, maybe people away from church. I just want you to think about them. Not, you obviously, you can't think about all of them, but I want you to fold some of them into your mind, and then after church, maybe you can bounce through them some more because I think it would be really appropriate to do. As you think of them, I want you to ask yourself a question. In light of verse 2, and in my explanation of what spoken well of means, how many of those who claim to be believers that are in your life would you say have had a dramatic spiritual effect on your life by the power of the Holy Spirit? Working through them, on a, and follow me through on this, on an ongoing basis. Not just a moment in time. I've known them for 14 years, and there was that one time. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what they're talking about. How many people that you know that claim to be believers would you say, because there's all sorts of people we know that are believers, that we would say, you know, I can speak well of them because they do this and they do that. They're, you know, they're hard workers. They're nice. They're friendly. They go out of their way to talk to me, you know, blah, 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 whatever the answer may be. That's what we're talking about. How many people that claim to be believers that are in your life that you could say, you know, the Spirit has used them dramatically in my life over time. Over time. To bring about transformation. Because God does use means, right? He absolutely uses means. I suspect, in the answer to the first set of questions, because I asked like two questions in there, most of us would probably find ourselves struggling a little bit to answer it. I suspect that most of us would find ourselves thinking about a lot of people that are in our lives that claim to be believers. I suspect that we would find very few that we would say, the Spirit has used them over time numerous times to cause growth in my life, to cause me to be transformed. You see, I think we approach people from a very different perspective than the Scriptures do. We think about people in a vastly different way. We think about people as being good people because they do nice things, because they're friendly. Because they work hard. Because they have a nice family. Or whatever the case may be. But that's not God's standard, is it? It goes back to the question, why did God save people? 
Why does God save those he saves? Doesn't it? Why does he do that? See, in too much of Christianity, well, he saves us so that we can not go to hell and said we can't go to heaven, right? I mean, that's why he saves us. No. I mean, those are, those are great things, right? And they're important things. They're very important things. But that's not, that's not the point. He tells us in the scripture, he saves us for his glory and worship. Worship being part of glory, right? For his glory to, to spread his fame. That's what it means. That's why he saves us. And yet we sit here this morning and if you're like, I'd say most Christians, you, you know as well as I do that that's not often what happens. Is it? Even believer to believer. Even believer to believer, there's not a whole lot of, man, I just so appreciate. Let me back up for a second. If you think that I'm making too much of this statement, think about how Paul starts almost every single one of his letters, except for Galatians. And what does he say? He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. And then he goes on and he talks about how God has been working through in them and through them. You know what he says? I mean, it's everywhere. If you don't believe it, read Ephesians, read Philippians, read Colossians, <laughs> read First and Second Timothy. I mean, you go anywhere except for Galatians and you see it. Even in Corinthian letters, you get it. And that church is a train wreck. His point is clearly about how God is glorifying himself through those people. And that's exactly where the focus is. So that's point number one, you know, in the application, that's point number one to ask the question, well, what about the believers in my life, those who claim to be believers? What kind of eternal effect are they having on my life? Again, kind of an easy question to ask and answer, right? You may be saddened by the answer, but it's relatively easy to answer, isn't it? But at the same time, it ought to be really troubling, shouldn't it? If your answer is what I suspect your answer is, that should be incredibly troubling to you and I. But the second applicational question is, there's where the pain comes in. And you all know where it's going to be. <laughs> if you're listening at all, you know where it's going to be. If all that we just said is true about why God saves us, then let me ask you a question. <clears throat> Here we are at Redeeming Grace Baptist Church. So we'll just talk about church. We're going to add to it later in just a few seconds. But how many people at church would say of you that God has used you in their life powerfully in the transformation process into Christ-likeness? 
just ask it a question. I'm not making an accusation. Okay? Not at all making an accusation. I'm just asking a question. Would people at our church say of you, or would it be said of you, <coughs> that the church speaks well of you from the understanding that we already talked about? Would the people of this church speak well of you? Because you have been used by the Spirit in the transformation process. Now, there could be another equation. Maybe everybody just rejects your ministry. That's possible, right? It's possible. Right? So we'll, we'll put that equation out for a second. Maybe no one would speak well of you because our church is an absolute train wreck. We're gla- like, like Galatians 2020. <laughs> okay? We're, let's say for sake of discussion, we're modern day Galatia. Church in Galatia. And so obviously no one is going to speak well of you then, right? In the church. Why? Because you've all be- the rest of the people at church have believed a lie, right? They've been bewitched. That's what Paul says. I wouldn't expect anybody to speak well of you then, right? So then I'd ask this question. If nobody listens, then here's my question. Then does everybody speak badly of you? Does everybody speak badly of you? That is, all people who claim to believers be believers. They speak badly of you. If they're not receiving the truth, then you think they probably would speak badly of you? What do you think? Remember what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 about the church in the last days? The first nine verses of chapter 3? Yeah, that, that it concludes with that. They're going to have itching ears. They, don't, they gather together teachers that will just tickle their itching ears, right? They, don't, they, cannot, they can no longer tolerate sound doctrine. Well, if you are a person of sound doctrine, do you think the people are going to hate you? I mean, come on. Chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, the entire Asian church left Paul. Demas left Paul. I, didn't, I, I, I suspect they didn't say, love you, Paul, but you know, we're going we're gonna to leave you. What do you think? No. They hated him. That's why they left him. And Demas, very clearly, left him because he what? Loved this present world. So, I guess my point is, when we look at verse 2, we find Timothy here, the, the big introduction of Timothy, not the generic one, but the big introduction of Timothy, and the big focus is on what? He clearly loves God, and he clearly loves God's Word. And it's pouring out of him. And he's finding people to minister to and he's ministering to them and he's exhorting them and he's confronting them and he's comforting them and he's encouraging them and he's seemingly just pointing people to Jesus. 
And we know that's the trajectory of Timothy's life, isn't it? All the way to the end. That's the trajectory of his life. Because the Spirit's at work in him. So the... I guess what I'm trying to draw out of chapter 16, verse 2, is when we look at Timothy, not that he's our hero because he's not, but the point is the Spirit is working in his life. You get that? The Spirit's at work in Timothy's life, and it's working in his life so dramatically that, not exclusively, it doesn't say that they only were speaking well of Timothy, right? Because that was the case, they wouldn't be speaking well of Timothy. But out of all the people in that church that were being spoken well of, it's like he's the cream that rises to the top. Does that make sense? I mean, they're all speaking well of a variety of people, most likely. But my goodness, this Timothy. He's on fire. And I suspect one of the reasons why Timothy is rising to the top more than the other people, maybe you didn't figure this out yet, but I suspect the reason why he's rising to the top, unlike the other people yet, he's the one that rises to the top, it's because of his grandmother and mother that have been teaching him. Second Timothy. And so he's much, all the rest of the people who got saved in, in Lystra, I'm sorry, in Derby are people who were just introduced to the gospel for the first time and got saved. I mean, they've got a lot of ground to cover, right? But Timothy, on the other hand, had a, a foundation. He had a groundwork. His maturity level would most likely come on a lot quicker because of knowledge. Does that make sense? doesn't give any of his past, though, does it? Because all, all of us here have pretty much claimed to be believers for quite some time, haven't we? The, the challenge, applicationally, in the verse 2 is that very thing. Are we being spoken well of? Because of our ministry for Christ? Because of our, our commitment and desire? Because the Spirit is at work in us? As Paul says, the love of Christ controls me? <laughs> And because I know the fear of God, I persuade men. Are we recognizing the love of God and the fear of God? And are we recognizing that it's causing a transformation in our life or not? Verse 3. This gets into a little bit of a controversial issue here. A lot, a lot of debate on verse 3. In fact, some people came to me after church last Sunday and started asking me questions about verse 3. And I said, you have to wait till next week. And they're not here today. But I think they may be listening. They're on vacation. Verse 3. <clears throat> Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So, in chapter 15, we know there was a conflict, right? A controversy. And the controversy was over circumcision. It started in chapter 14, didn't it? In Antioch. Do you need to be circumcised in order to be truly saved or not? And, of course, Paul stood up and he did what? He did the Timothy thing, didn't he? Let's make sure and connect the dots. He did the Timothy thing, right? He ministered. He challenged. He exhorted. He pointed out the truth. Right? 
However, at that point in time, there were people who were arguing for circumcision that did not respond well to that, did they? And so the church finally said, Paul, Barnabas, why don't you guys head back down to Jerusalem, talk to the elders and the apostles, let's sort this thing out and let's get unified and let's, let's get going. And they said, good idea. Chapter 15. When they got together, they said, no, circumcision is not something required. It isn't, right? That's what we saw. Chapter 15 was not required. And they wrote a letter about it, didn't they? And in that letter, they said there are certain people who are teaching about circumcision. That's not our teaching. Correct? That's what they said. And then we come to chapter 16, verse 3. Right after 15 closes, three verses into chapter 16, Paul's talking to Timothy and says, Hey, Timothy, we'd like you to come along on our next journey. Timothy, okay. Paul, yeah, you need to be circumcised. What? What's going on? Is Paul backsliding somehow in chapter 16, verse 3? Is he screwing up here really badly? No. Not at all. What's going on here is very important. In chapter 14 and 15, circumcision was debated, argued, fought over, studied. And they determined absolutely that circumcision was not a requirement for salvation, circumcision being symbolmatic of the entirety of the Old Testament law. Following the law is not essential for being saved. That was established, correct? There's nothing we can do, right? It's all the work of Christ on the cross and the Spirit applying His work in our lives, correct? That's what is established very clearly. And yet, three verses in chapter 16, he circumcised Timothy. So how do we reconcile these two things? It's really important that we do. How do we reconcile them? Well, here's the reconciliation of these two seemingly disparate perspectives. On the one hand, chapter 14 and 15, the conflict is over circumcision in light of theological justification. Does that make sense? About how is one saved? It's a theological issue called justification. How do we go from being an enemy of God to being a friend and family of God, adopted as sons? How do we go from death to life? In that category, Paul absolutely opposed circumcision. Correct? He absolutely opposed it. When we come into chapter 16, verse 3, it's something very, very different. It's still circumcision, but it's something very, very different. He says, hey, Timothy, yes, we'd love to have you come, but we need to circumcise you. Timothy gets circumcised. Why? Because it's not about justification. It's not about theology at all. In chapter 16, verse 3, Paul is not backsliding. He's not compromising. Timothy's not compromising in order to get circumcised. The issue is not theological at all. What it is, as Paul is getting ready to go on this big, long journey to a variety of cities, 
what he's going to do is he's going to follow his pattern. He goes to a city, and the first place he goes is to the Jewish synagogue. If you don't believe that, look at chapter, we don't have time, but look at chapter 16 and 17. He does it repeatedly. He first goes to the Jewish synagogues and he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ as the fulfillment, that Christ is the fulfillment of the law. If Timothy is going to come along with Paul and Silas and go to these various cities with Paul and Silas, He's going to be going with Paul and Silas into the Jewish synagogues. That would be an absolute offense to the Jews that an uncircumcised person would enter into the synagogue. This is not about how to be saved. This is about, as Paul says elsewhere, when in Rome be as the Romans. You could change that. When with Jews, be as the Jews. So that maybe we'll win some. See, Christ is the offense of the gospel, isn't he? Christ is a stumbling block, is he not? That's what the scriptures tell us. Circumcision is not the stumbling block, correct? Christ is. For Paul to not circumcise Timothy at this point is for Paul to bring into the synagogue an extra offense. Because when Timothy would walk into a synagogue, especially being Greek and Jewish, he's not going to most likely look like a pure Jew. He would be questioned. And the big question would be, are you circumcised? Before he could ever open his mouth to preach the gospel with Paul and Silas, he'd be asked that question. And it'd be an immediate offense, not just to, or against um, Timothy, it would be an offense against Paul and Silas as well. And so Paul says, before we go, you need to be circumcised. So Timothy gets circumcised. It has nothing to do with theology. It has to do with, let's make sure Christ is the offense. Let's just make sure Christ is. Can I just pause on that one for a second? Because this is really important. It's really important. For Paul... The gospel was relatively important, wasn't it? Now you know that's not true. It wasn't relatively important. I said that just to be sarcastic. For Paul, it wasn't relatively important. It was what? Ultimately and supremely important. And so Paul is functioning from a perspective of what is unneeded offense. Correct? What for Paul is necessary is I just want the gospel to shine forth. It's interesting. That's Paul's perspective. And as a result, people who love Jesus would speak highly of Paul, wouldn't they? Just like speaking highly of Timothy. 
But for Paul, it was of supreme importance in his mind as he lived life, as he made tents, as he went here, as he went there, as he went to the market and bought dinner, as, as, as he, as he uh, washed his clothes, as he did whatever he would do, of supreme and ultimate importance for Paul was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And everything went through that filter. It wasn't relatively important. It wasn't one of many important things for Paul. It was the only thing that was really important. I say as I pause this for a second because I do want to challenge us to ask ourselves if we fall into the trap. And could I just say this right off the bat? I do. Regularly. Of the gospel being relatively important. I fall in that trap. In other words, what I mean by that, how often do we live life and not take into account is there things of importance to me that are nothing but unnecessary stumbling blocks for the gospel? Let me meddle a little bit, if I may. If you know me, you know I'm interested in politics. It's a political season, right? If you, if you hang around with me long enough, you know that I, I'm interested in politics. And I bet you a lot of you are as well, at some level. But how often as we're thinking about politics and maybe getting involved in a political conversation with somebody who's lost... How often do we think about, wait a second, is this actually going to be an impediment to the gospel? Or is it not? Is this going to be a stumbling block for my opportunity to present Christ? Now, can I just say something going back to our original question we asked? I think many Christians never even think in those categories. You know what the evidence of it is? I can't tell you how many times I've talked to unsaved people who are actually absolutely convinced that saved and Republican is one and the same. That's troubling to me. That's really troubling to me. And I'm not trying to get up on a political soapbox at all. Does that not ring as an impediment? A stumbling block to the gospel? I know for you, Ken, it would, because you, you're, you're like Mr. Apolitical. <laughs> but is that not? I mean, does it even cross our minds? Okay, we're getting ready to go into a political conversation here. I can tell this, this unsaved person, this person wants to talk about politics right now, whether it's about coronavirus or Biden or... Trump or whoever or whatever does even cross our mind to think about gospel. Does it? Does it even cross our mind to evaluate what's of supreme importance here? 
I'm not saying that politics should never be talked about. That's what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. And I'm just using it as an illustration because the season we're in. It's not at all what I'm saying. But does it even show up on our radar screen? Is this going, just a simple question, is this going to be a stumbling block to the gospel? For them, it was the circumcision. Eh, Timothy, you need to be circumcised. Why? So that we don't have a stumbling block to giving out the gospel, right? Because gospel is supremely of importance. And the unsaved people need Jesus. Well, that's a radically different perspective. Now, don't get focused on the politics thing. It could be anything, right? It could be anything. Verse 4. And as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observation the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy then begin to travel through the area. And then they're going to go way beyond the area in a little bit. And as they're going through the area... They are both preaching the gospel to the lost people, but they're also going to all these infant churches. These recently planted churches. And they're doing what? They're proclaiming the truth of the gospel as being saved through grace, through faith alone. Correct? And not circumcision. They are taking this letter and they are robustly proclaiming the truth theologically of what we call soteriology, the study of salvation, right? They are going church to church and they are teaching them robustly what the truth is with regard to salvation. So they all that are in those churches can robustly do what? defend the truth of salvation and proclaim the truth of salvation both to save other saved people and lost people, right? Make sense? So that they can know themselves and then proclaim to believers, minister to other believers, and minister to other unbelievers who need to be believers, who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what is the result? As a result of the robustness of the presentation, notice what it says again in verse 4 and 5. Uh, or I'm sorry, verse 5. So the churches were what? Strengthened in the faith, and increasing daily. Can I just submit something to you? We're going to real quickly wrap this up. I'm going to be really blunt on this. I am convinced that the vast majority of what would be called evangelical churches today are no longer bringing robust truth. They're not now, there are exceptions, but they're no longer carefully, robustly exegeting the Scriptures. And they're no longer carefully and robustly presenting theological truth. 
And there's a variety of reasons for that. One of them is this crazy emphasis, I've got to grow big churches. And one of those is because of the fear of losing people. And one of those is because of the fear of rejection by the lost people, missing the point that it is the Spirit who does the work. And there's many other reasons why. But generally speaking, I would argue in verse 5, the ramifications of robust presentation of truth, the ramifications of robust presenting the truth of Scriptures and theological depth in, in presentation is that the church is what? Strengthened. That is, when it says it's strengthened, it means they grow in maturity. Could I just submit to you? That's unusual. In most churches, there's, you've heard me say it before, this is nothing new. In most churches, there's very little expectation that people will become truly mature in Christ. There's very little expectation that the vast majority of people in the church will become elder-esque type of people. Mature in Christ, even though they can't be elders. Women, that doesn't exclude you. You can still be elder-esque, as in maturity-wise. It's a word I made up. Okay. You can become an elder type of person maturity-wise, even if you can't be an elder. You can be wise in the Scriptures. You can be wise in theology. You can no longer be driven to and fro by every wind of doctrine. But you can be robustly anchored in the truth. That expectation doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't. Well, there's some exceptions. There's pockets of it. But generally speaking, it's not, it doesn't exist anymore. In the average church, you find that the weakest members, because they're most numerous, are the ones running the church. And the decisions, for the most part, are carnal decisions. They're not being strengthened in the Lord. But the result of Paul, Silas, and Timothy robustly bringing the truth of salvation to both believers and unsaved people, you get both pictures in verse 5, don't you? The result is, number one, the people of the church are maturing in Christ. They're becoming enthralled with Jesus. And number two, by implication, it says in verse 5 that they increased in numbers daily. I would submit to you that most likely is not because Paul, Timothy, and, 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 and Silas is doing the work. The evidence that these, that, 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 that these numbers are going up daily is more because the people are being strengthened. It doesn't say the church in, in town A only grew because Paul, Silas, and Timothy were there. Then when they went, it didn't grow anymore. It just says generically they're growing. Doesn't, isn't that what it says? The implication being it's continuing to grow. Timothy... Paul, Silas are there ministering. The church is maturing. The church is growing. 
being added to, they leave and it continues. It continues. Maturity still continues. Saving still continues. Why? Because the truth is transforming these people as they grow in Christ. We're going to close on that. Let me just challenge us as we go to the communion table. <coughs> to go back to our first two questions. Do we find that the Christians in our lives, those who claim to be Christians in our lives, are people who we would say we speak highly of them because of their ministry of the word in our lives? And number two, would, would people say of us, would they speak highly of us, of me, of you? Because you and I are ministering the word of God. Exhorting and encouraging and comforting and confronting people according to the scriptures. Would you and I be spoken of highly? Can I just ask you? Last question, do we need to repent? Have we been thinking badly? Have we been too casual with the truth of the scriptures? Have we been too flippant? Have we been caught up in a host of circumcisions? And making the gospel relatively important. I know we, we, because Communion Sunday, have not had a confession this morning. But perhaps we need to confess our sins. And ask God to forgive us for holding to the gospel as of relative importance, not first importance. And perhaps we need to ask God to transform us. Open our eyes to see open our ears to hear, open our mouths as a result to speak of the great wonders of Jesus. And I want to remind you that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what he promises. And he also promises if we if we drink at the fountain of living water and keep on drinking, he promises that out of us will flow rivers of living water. And you've heard me say it before, we drink of a fountain and outflow rivers, plural. So he says. By the way, it's a really great test. If there's no rivers flowing, it's because we're not drinking at the fountain. Because the promise is that rivers will flow if we drink at the fountain and keep on drinking at the fountain of living water. And that's the amazing mercy of God, isn't it? That he would allow you and I, people who perhaps have for too long been too flippant, too casual, 
that even at this late date, he could still transform us. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that's stunning. Let's go to Jesus, shall we? Let's pray. Lord, help us. <coughs> we are human beings who are weak in our flesh. We know it. And it's very easy for us to get caught up in other things to surrender ourselves to other things, to make your gospel of relative importance. But it must not be relative importance because it is not, nothing else even compares to it. It is in a category all its own. And so Lord, we ask you to help us to see how we have for too long perhaps relegated your gospel, relegated you to bits and pieces of our lives. And Lord, we ask you to transform us, that we will see you as you are, that we will see your gospel as it is, that we will see the amazing greatness of your grace. Draw us close. In forgiveness and repentance, bring clarity where once was foggy. changes for your glory. In your name I pray. Amen. As we go to the communion service, communion part of the service, you guys can come on up.